Podcastle, episode 394, for December 15th, 2015. Ogres of East Africa, by Sophia Sumitar, rated PG. Hello, and welcome to Podcastle. I'm Rachel K. Jones, your co-editor and host, and this week, we're talking about making lists. There are two kinds of people in the world. Number one, people who love making lists, and number two, people who don't. I am, of course, number one. And nothing calls for a good bout of list-making in the Jones household like the month of December, which always finds me making lists of addresses for cards, shopping lists for presents, and lists of ingredients for cooking tasty things. Lists are great because they help us extend our working memory beyond its natural capacity. They let us plan ahead. They help us pay attention to the little details we might otherwise miss. A list of types of lists. Recipes, spell books, checklists, dictionaries, address books, indexes, genealogies, directories, best of and worst of lists, inventories, listicles, catalogs, bestiaries. <laughs> Bestiaries, now that's a neat kind of list, and it brings us to today's story, which features such a list, and shows how lists can be used in more than one way in the hands of different people. Podcastle is very proud to present Ogres of East Africa, written by Sophia Sumitar. It first appeared in the long-hidden anthology, Speculative Fiction from the Margins of History, And it was nominated for the 2015 Locus Award. Sophia Sumitar is the author of the novel A Stranger in Alondria and the winner of the John W. Campbell Award, the Crawford Award, the British Fantasy Award, and the World Fantasy Award. She co-edits the journal Interfictions and lives in California. Her new novel, The Winged Histories, a sequel to A Stranger in Alondria, is forthcoming from Small Beer Press in 2016. Your narrators today are Choi L. Wiggins and Kalita Muhammad Ali. Choi L. Wiggins is a fantasy and science fiction writer. His work has appeared in the Griot's Sisters of the Spear anthology, the Long Hidden anthology, and the Memphis Noir anthology. Additionally, his essays have appeared in Fusion, the mashup Americans and Atlanta Black Star Online magazines. He is also a contributor at Book Riot and Panels Online magazines. Khalida Muhammad Ali lives in Houston, Texas with her husband of 25 years and three children. By day, she works as a breast oncology nurse. At all other times, she juggles, none too successfully, writing, reading, gaming, and gardening. She has a self-published novel entitled An Unproductive Woman and has published a story at Escape Pod, and has a story upcoming in the Alphabet of Embers anthology. You can catch her posts at her website, www.kalita.com, and you can follow her on Twitter, at Kalita. Now, shh, quiet down and listen close. 
I think I hear the sound of fast feet, running feet, galloping feet. We best keep our ears open and enjoy the story. Ogres of East Africa by Sophia Samatar 1907, Kenya Catalogued by Alibi M. Musaji of Mombasa February 1907 1. Apul Apul A male ogre of the Great Lakes region a melancholy character, he eats crickets to sweeten his voice. His house burned down with all of his children inside. His enemy is the hare. My informant, a woman of the highlands who calls herself only Mary, adds that a pool a pool can be heard on windy nights, crying for his lost progeny. She claims that he has been sighted far from his native country, even on the coast, and that an Arab trader once shot and wounded him from the battlements of Fort Jesus. It happened in a famine year, the year of fever. A great deal of research would be required in order to match this year when, according to Mary, the cattle perished in droves to one of the years of our Lord by which my employer reckons the passage of time. I append this note, therefore, in fine print and in the margins. Always read the fine print, Alibi, my employer reminds me when I draw up his contracts. He is unable to read it himself. His eyes are not good. The African sun has spoilt them, Alibi. Apul Apul, Mary says, bears a festering sore where the bullet pierced him. He is allergic to lead. 2. Baiti, a grave dweller from the environs of the ancient capital of Kush. The Baiti possesses a skeletal figure with a morbid sense of humor. Its great pleasure is to impersonate human beings. If your dearest friend wears a cloak and claims to suffer from a cold, he may be a Baiti in disguise. Mary arrives every day precisely at the second hour after dawn. I am curious about this reserved and encyclopedic woman. It amuses me to write these reflections concerning her in the margins of the catalog I am composing for my employer. He will think this writing fly tracks or smudges from my dirty hands. He persists in his opinion that I am always dirty. As I write, I see Mary before me as she presents herself each morning in her calico dress, seated on an overturned crate. I believe she is not very old, though she must be several years older than I. But I am very young. Too young to walk like an old man, Alipai. Show some spirit. Ha! As she talks, she works at a bit of scarlet thread, plaiting something, perhaps a necklace. The tips of her fingers seem permanently stained with color. Where did you learn so much about ogres, Mary? Anyone may learn. You need only listen. What is your full name? She stops plaiting and looks up. Her eyes drop their veil of calm and flash at me, in annoyance, in warning. I told you, she says. Mary. Only Mary. 3. Degdeir 
a female ogre of Somaliland. Her name means long ear. She is described as a large, heavy woman, a very fast runner. One of her ears is said to be much longer than the other. In fact, so long that it trails upon the ground. With this ear, she can hear her enemies approaching from a great distance. She lives in a ruined hovel with her daughter. The daughter is beautiful and would like to be married. Eventually, she will murder the Degdeir by filling her ear with boiling water. My employer is so pleased with the information we have received from Mary that he has decided to camp here for another week. Milk her alibi, he says, leering. Eh, squeeze her. Get as much out of her as you can. Ha <laughs> ha! My employer always shouts, as the report of his gun has made him rather deaf. In the evenings, he invites me into his tent, where, closed in by walls, a roof, and a floor of Willisden canvas, I am afforded a brief respite from the mosquitoes. A lamp hangs from the central pole, and beneath it, my employer sits with his legs stretched out and his red hands crossed on his stomach. Very good, Alibi, he says. Excellent. Having shot every type of animal in the protectorate, he is now determined to try his hand at Ogre. I will be required to record his kills as I keep track of all his accounts. It would be damn fine, he opines, to acquire the ear of Dick Dare. Mary tells me that one day, Dick Dare's daughter, wrecked with remorse, will walk into the sea and give herself up to the sharks. 4. Iimu Iimu transports his victims across a vast body of water in a ferry boat. His country, which lies on the other side, is inaccessible to all creatures save ogres and weaver birds. If you are trapped there, your only recourse is to beg the weaver birds for sticks. You will need seven sticks in order to get away. The first two sticks will allow you to turn yourself into a stone, thereby escaping notice. The remaining five sticks enable the following transformations. Thorns, a pit, darkness, sand, a river. Stand up straight, Alibi. Look lively, man. My employer is of the opinion that I do not show a young man's proper spirit. This, he tells me, is a racial defect and therefore not my fault. But I may improve myself by following his example. My employer thrusts out his chest. Look, Alibi. He says that if I walk about stooped over like a dotard, people will get the impression that I am shiftless and craven, and this will quite naturally make them want to kick me. He himself has kicked me on occasion. It is true that my back is often stiff, and I find it difficult to extend my limbs to their full length. Perhaps, as my employer suspects, I am growing old before my time. These nights of full moon are so bright, I can see my shadow on the grass. It rids like a snake when I make an effort to straighten my back. 5. Katadambaliko While most ogres are large, Katandabaliko is small, the size of a child. 
He arrives with the sound of galloping, just as the food is ready. There is sunshine for you, he cries. This causes everyone to faint. And Katatan Beliko devours the food at his leisure. Katatan Beliko cannot himself be cooked. Cut up and boiled, he knits himself back together and bounces out of the pot. Those who attempt to cook and eat him may eat their own wives by mistake. When not tormenting human beings, he prefers to dwell among the cliffs. I myself prefer to dwell in Mombasa, at the back of my uncle's shop, Musaji and Company. I cannot pretend to enjoy nights spent in the open, under what my employer calls the splendor of the African sky. Mosquitoes whine, and something, probably a dangerous animal, rustles in the grass. The Somali cook and headman sit up late, exchanging stories, while the Kavarondo porters sleep in a corral constructed of baggage. I am uncomfortable, but at least I am not lonely. My employer is pleased to think that I suffer terribly from loneliness. It's no picnic for you, eh, alibi? He thinks me too prejudiced to tolerate the society of the porters and too frightened to go near the Somalis, who, to his mind, being devout Sunnis, must be plotting the removal of my Shia head. In fact, we all pray together. We are tired and far from home. We are here for money, and when we talk, we talk about money. We can discuss calculations for hours, what we expect to buy, where we expect to invest. Our languages are different, but all of us count in Swahili. 6. Kibuji A male ogre who haunts the foothills of Mount Kenya. He carries machetes, knives, hoes, and other objects made of metal. If you can manage to make a cut in his little finger, all the people he has devoured will come streaming out. Mary has had, I suspect, a mission education. This would explain the name and the calico dress. Such an education is nothing to be ashamed of. Why, then, did she stand up in such a rage when I inquired about it? Mary's rage is cold. She kept her voice low. I have told you not to ask me these types of questions. I have only come to tell you about ogres. Give me the money. She held out her hand, and I doled out her daily fee in rupees, although she had not stayed for the agreed amount of time. She seized the money and secreted it in her dress. Her contempt burned me. My hands trembled as I wrote her fee in my record book. No questions, she repeated, seething with anger. If I went to a mission school, I'd burn it down. I have always been a free woman. I was silent, although I might have reminded her that we are both my employer's servants. Like me, she has come here for money. I watched her stride off down the path to the village. At a certain distance, she began to waver gently in the sun. My face still burns from the sting of her regard. Before she left, I felt compelled to inform her that, although my father was born at Karachi, I was born at Mombasa. I, too, am an African. Mary's mouth twisted. So is Kibugi, she said. 7. Kiptebangiran 
a fearsome yet curiously domestic ogre of the Rift Valley. He collects human skulls, which he once used to decorate his spacious dwelling. He made the skulls so clean, it is said, and arranged them so prettily that from a distance his house resembled a palace of salt. His human wife bore him two sons, one which looked human like its mother, and one called Kiptigen, which resembled its father. When the wife was rescued by her human kin, her human-looking child was also saved, but Kiptigen was burnt alive. I am pleased to say that Mary returned this morning, perfectly calm and apparently resolved to forget our quarrel. She tells me that Kiptikin's brother will never be able to forget the screams of his sibling perishing in the flames. The mother, too, is scarred by the loss. She had to be held back, or she would have dashed into the fire to rescue her ogre child. This information does not seem appropriate for my employer's catalog. Still, I find myself adding it in the margins. There is a strange pleasure in this writing and not writing. These letters that hang between revelation and oblivion. If my employer discovered these notes, he would call them impudence, cunning, a trick. What would I say in my defense? Sir, I was unable to tell you. Sir, I was unable to speak of the weeping mother of Kiptigan. He would laugh. He believes that all words are found in his language. I ask myself if there are words contained in Mary's margins. Stories of ogres she cannot tell to me. Kiptibangurion, she says, is homeless now. A modern creature, he roams the protectorate clinging to the undersides of trains. 8. Kisirimu Kisirimu dwells on the shores of Lake Albert. Bathed, dressed in bark cloth, carrying his bow and arrows, he glitters like a bridegroom. His purpose is to trick gullible young women. He will be betrayed by song. He will die in a pit, pierced by spears. In the evenings, under the light of the lamp, I read the day's inventory from my record book, informing my employer of precisely what had been spent and eaten. As a representative of Musaji and Company, superior traders, stevedores, and duboshes, I am responsible for ensuring that nothing has been stolen. My employer stretches, closes his eyes, and smiles as I inform him of the amount of sugar, coffee, and tea in his possession. Tinned bacon, tinned milk, oat porridge, salt, ghee. The dates, he reminds me, are strictly for the Somalis, who grow sullen in the absence of this treat. My employer is full of opinions. The Somalis, he tells me, are an excitable nation. Don't offend them, alibi. <laughs> the Cavarondo, by contrast, are merry and tractable, excellent for manual work. My own people are cowardly, but clever at figures. There is nothing, he tells me, more odious than a German. However, their women are seductive, and they make the world's most beautiful music. My employer sings me a German song. He sounds like a buffalo in distress. Afterwards, he makes me read to him from the Bible. He believes I will find this painful. Here's the alibi. 
<laughs> You'll have to scrub your mouth out, eh? Extra ablutions. Fortunately, God does not share his prejudices. I read, there were giants in the earth in those days. I read, for only Og, king of Bashan, remained of the remnant of giants. Behold, his bedstead was a bedstead of iron. 9. Cognac Cognac is a hunter. His bulging eyes can perceive movement far across the plains. Human beings are his prey. He runs with great loping strides, kills, sleeps underneath the boughs of a leafy tree. His favorite question is, Mother, whose footprints are these? Mary tells me that Cognac passed through her village in the year of Amber. The whirlwind of his running loosened the roofs. A wise woman had predicted his arrival, and the young men, including Mary's brother, had set up a net between trees to catch him. But Cognac only laughed and tore down the net and disappeared with a sound of thunder. He is now, Mary believes, in the region of Eldoret, she tells me that her brother and the other young men who devised the trap have not been seen since the disappearance of Cognac. Mary's gaze is peculiar. It draws me in. I find it strange that, just a few days ago, I described her as a cold person. When she tells me of her brother, she winds her scarlet thread so tightly about her finger, I am afraid she will cut it off. 10. Mbiti Mbiti hides in the berry bushes. When you reach in, she says, Oh, don't pluck my eye out. She asks you, Shall I eat you or shall I make you my child? You agree to become Mbiti's child. She pricks you with a needle. She is betrayed by the cowrie shell at the end of her tail. My brother, Mary says, she describes the forest. She says we will go there to hunt ogres. Her face is filled with a subdued yet urgent glow. I find myself leaning closer to her. The sounds of others, their voices, the smack of an axe into wood, recede until they are thin as the buzzing of flies. The world is composed of Mary and myself, and the sky about Mary, and the trees about Mary. She asks me if I understand what she is saying. She tells me about her brother in the forest. I realize that the glow she exudes comes not from some supernatural power, but from fear. She speaks to me carefully, as if to a child. She gives me a bundle of scarlet threads. She says, When the child goes into the forest, it wears a red necklace, and when the ogre sees the necklace, it spares the child. She says, I think you and my brother are exactly the same age. My voice is reduced to a whisper. What of Mbiti? Mary gives me a deep glance, fiercely bright. She says, Mbiti is lucky. She has not been caught. Until she is caught, she will be one of the guardians of the forest. Mbiti is always an ogre, and always the sister of ogres. 11. Entemelua. Entemelua, a newborn baby, already has teeth.
He sings, Draw near, little pot, draw near, little spoon. He replaces the meat in the pot with balls of dried dung. Filthy and clever, he crawls into a cow's anus to hide in its stomach. Ntemelua is weak, and he lives by fear, which is a supernatural power. He rides a hyena. His back will never be quite straight, but this signifies little to him, for he can still stretch his limbs with pleasure. The only way to escape him is to abandon his country. Tomorrow we depart. I am to give the red necklaces only to those I trust. You know them, Mary explained, as I know you. Do you know me? I asked, moved and surprised. She smiled. It is easy to know someone in a week. You need only listen. Two paths lie before me now. One leads to the forest, the other leads home. How easily I might return to Mombasa. I could steal some food and rupees and begin walking. I have a letter of contract affirming that I am employed and not a vagrant. How simple to claim that my employer has dispatched me back to the coast to order supplies or to Abyssinia to purchase donkeys. But these scarlet threads burn in my pocket. I want to draw nearer to the source of their heat. I want to meet the ogres. You were right, Mary told me before she left. I did go to a mission school, and I didn't burn it down. She smiled, a smile of mingled defiance and shame. One of her eyes shone brighter than the other, kindled by a tear. I wanted to cast myself at her feet and beg her forgiveness. Yes, to beg her forgiveness for having pried into her past, for having stirred up the memory of her humiliation. Instead, I said clumsily, even Ntemelua spent some time in a cow's anus. Mary laughed. Thank you, brother, she said. She walked away down the path, sedate and upright, and I do not know if I will ever see her again. I imagine meeting a young man in the forest, a man with a necklace of scarlet thread who stands with Mary's light bearing and regards me with Mary's direct and trenchant glance. I look forward to this meeting, as if to the sight of a long-lost friend. I imagine clasping the hand of this young man, who is like Mary and like myself. Beneath our joined hands, my employer lies slain. The ogres tear open the tins and enjoy a prodigious feast among the darkling trees. 12. Rakakabe Rakakabe how beautiful is he, Rakakabe? A Malagasy demon. He has been sighted as far north as Kismayo. He skims the waves. He eats mosquitoes. His face gleams. His hair gleams. His favorite question is, Are you sleeping? Rakakabe of the gleaming tail. No. We are wide awake. This morning we depart on our expedition. My employer sings, Green grow the rushes, oh. But we, his servants, are even more cheerful. We are prepared to meet the ogres. We catch one another's eyes and smile. 
All of us sport necklaces of red thread, signs that we belong to the party of the ogres, that we are prepared to hide and fight and die with those who live in the forest, those who are dirty and crooked and resolute. Tell my brother his house is waiting for him, Mary whispered to me at the end. Such an honor to be the one to deliver our message. While she continues walking, meeting others, passing into other hands the blood-red necklaces by which the ogres are known. There will be no end to this catalog. The ogres are everywhere. Number 13. Alibi M. Musaji of Mombasa. The porters lift their loads with unaccustomed verve. They set off singing. See alibi? My employer exclaims in delight. They're made for it. Natural workers. Oh yes, sir. Indeed, sir. The sky is tranquil, the dust saturated with light. Everything conspires to make me glad. Soon, I believe, I shall enter into the mansion of the ogres and stretch my limbs on the doorstep of Rakakabe. And welcome back. Wow, that ending gives me chills. About this story, Sophia had this to say in her blog. The story was inspired in part by a vile book called A Picnic Party in Wildest Africa by C.W.L. Bullpit, which was published in 1907. This book is full of information. Seriously, it did give me a lot of information for my story, like what a hunter would take on a trip like that, and how much things would cost, and even what currency was being used, rupees, and what the tents were made of. It also, of course, gave me bucket loads of information about what various quote-unquote tribes in Africa are like, because Bullpit has a lot of opinions about this. A lot. And so does his wife, whose journals he uses at random, just pulling quotes around the excerpts. In my story, the white hunter voices similar opinions, in the same kind of pompous tone. But what he says is a lot milder than what you read in a picnic party. He doesn't dwell on dirt and nakedness, for instance. The disgust isn't there. My hunter is more cheerfully racist. He's a teddy bear compared to the bullpits. To read the rest of Sophia's thoughts and inspirations for the story, check out the full blog post, which we'll link in the show notes on our forum. And speaking of which, let's go to our assistant editor, Khalida Muhammad Ali, for the episode feedback. Salam, good people. This is Khalida Muhammad Ali, assistant editor over here at PodCastle. Hope you've all been well. Feedback this week is for PodCastle episode number 384, The Flash Fiction Extravaganza, Vintage PodCastle, with multiple stories. The Island Wakes by D.K. Thompson, Sheep Among Easter Werewolves by Anne Leckie, Surprises Not Secrets by Anna Schwind, The Summation of Evil Core Subsidies HR Meeting Agenda Minutes compiled by Olivia Washington by LaShawn M. Wanak, and last but definitely not least, If You Were a Dinosaur, My Love by Rachel Swirsky. Did anyone recognize yours truly in that lineup anywhere? <clears throat> well, Devoted135 
has some interesting things to say. This episode was a full win for me. What a great concept for a Flash episode. Though I must say that I too was disappointed to rehear the dinosaur story rather than getting a new one from Rachel. Other than that, I think the Sheep Among Easter Werewolves was my favorite. Partly because of the tie-in, but also because I just found it really amusing. I'm okay with some predictability in Flash as long as the premise is interesting. My Riolana says, I laughed out loud at the Evil Core story. The narration of the dinosaur just killed me. I was an absolute wreck. I had heard the story on EP, of course, but this time the narration was just completely heartbreaking. Hey, Marilana, most people cried at that too. Arachnophile says, Was it entirely necessary to include If You Were a Dinosaur, My Love, at the end of this episode? I'm an evil scientist. I can ill afford to be seen sitting behind the wheel of my car in the parking lot, weeping uncontrollably. Seriously, though. I heard that story first when it ran on a skate pod. It wrecked me then, and it wrecked me again this morning. The fact that some folks begrudge this piece the awards that it won is both astonishing and depressing. Thanks for those comments. Well, that's it for now, but we'll be back next week. Hope to see you there. Thanks, Kalita. And thank you for those comments. Stop on by and let us know what you thought of today's story. And while you're there, consider making a donation. Every single cent goes toward paying our authors so we can keep bringing you the best fantasy fiction week after week. And if you can't donate, consider blogging or tweeting about us and spreading the word. Well, that was our show for this week. On behalf of everyone at PodCastle, our slushers Arun Jiwa, Sarah Goldman, Jennifer Albert, and Melissa Hoflick, our audio producer Peter Wood, our forum moderators Talia and Asikat, our assistant editor Cleta Muhammad Ali, and your editors Graham Dunlop and myself, thanks for letting us share another story with you. We'll be back next week with another. Until then, this is Rachel K. Jones reminding you that there will be no end to this catalog. The ogres are everywhere. Our closing quote comes from Octavia Butler, who said, Civilization is the way one's own people live. Savagery is the way foreigners live. of measureless qualities in an ocean of joy, our most cherished and longed